that you know how to rescue the godly through all their trials. And so as we look at your punishment, we look at your protection, would you help us grow in our love for you? And so meet with us now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. When we think of the early days of the church, and we think of the threats to the church, we think of the obstacles that early Christians had to face, we often think that the physical persecution that they faced must have been the biggest threat. This weekend, our men, uh, many of us gathered together and considered uh, just a short piece of Paul's writings to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, and we were encouraged uh, just as we went through Philippians 1 that physical persecution hasn't been the biggest threat to the church throughout history. In fact, what we have found, Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, because of my imprisonment, because of the persecution that I have faced, I understand this to be advancing the gospel forcefully. If you were to read Acts chapter 7 through Acts chapter 13, what you would see is that persecution really began to accelerate the spread of the gospel in the advance of the church. One of the early church fathers of the second century said it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed for the church. And so while the injustices and the horrors of physical persecution For following Jesus are very real prospects for brothers and sisters around the world. History attests to the reality that physical persecution hasn't been the greatest threat to the church. What's been the greatest threat to the church then? It seems to have been the temptation to believe and to live in a way that's contrary to the teachings of the word of God. So not physical persecution... But believing and living in a way that runs counter to God's word. You see, if persecution was the greatest threat to the church, then the places where the church wasn't experiencing great persecution, the church should be thriving. The church in the West should be thriving because the West, by and large, hasn't experienced great persecution. And the church in the South and the church to the East should be struggling because they are experiencing great persecution even as I speak. And yet that's not what we find. We find, by and large, the church in the West asleep. And we find the church to the global south and to the east to be spreading. The the epicenter of Christian growth isn't the West, but it is the global south and it's the east. In 1900, twice as many Christians lived in Europe than in the rest of the world combined. Some 100 years later, Latin America and Africa have more professing Christians than all of Europe. In a decade or two, Asia will also pass that number in Europe. And so, a century ago, Europe, by and far, leading in the number, the promotion, and the spread of the gospel. And today, one out of every four Christians in the world presently is in Africa. 
Christianity has grown at twice the rate of the population on the continent of Asia. Studies indicate that more Christians are found worshiping in China on any given Sunday than in the U.S. And that's not merely because of population. Persecution is a mainstay in the global south and in the, and in the east. So what then, what do we make of this false teaching and immoral living? Maybe I could say it this way, not all churches are safe churches. Not all preachers are true preachers. Not all sermons are Christian sermons. Not all Christian books take their cue from the Bible. Not all Christian radio stations play music that magnifies Christ. And you say, wow, that seems pretty judgmental and harsh (laughs) on the front end of this sermon. What grounds can you make such claims? Well, aside just from the experience of knowing that not all churches are safe churches and not all preachers are true preachers and not all sermons are Christian sermons and not all Christian books take their cues from the Bible and not all Christian radio stations play music that clearly magnifies Christ, Jesus himself warned us of this. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, Jesus says, Many false prophets will arise and they will mislead many. And it's that concern, it's that warning that Peter heard Jesus speak with his lips that has dominated his mind throughout this whole letter. The reality of this deadly threat of false teaching and the immoral living that accompanies it is what led Peter, uh, Peter, (laughs) Peter in letter. It's what led Peter to write this letter. And friends, if I could just encourage you, this ought to sort of draw us in. We all have skin in this game because false teaching hasn't stopped. It abounds. And in many ways, it's exported from this country into other places at startling rate. The threat of false teaching is crouching at the door of Christianity as we know it today. And it's crouching in many different and various forms. Preachers and teachers and authors and bloggers, they seek to promote another gospel. Entertainment and government seeking to redefine marriage and family and sexuality. Standing on truth only then to be accused by neighbors and co-workers of being bigoted and a and offensive, how in the world could you even suggest that all people must bow in submission to one God? There were theological wolves in the midst of these churches that Peter is writing to, and they were lurking near the sheep. And there are theological wolves in sheep's clothing even today. Peter is in prison in Rome, and as he's writing, the last few grains of sand are falling through the hourglass of his life. He's about to die. And with each word, more and more weight is added. 
And so for these who are trying to stand firm against the raging currents of false teaching, Peter reminds them. Remember what he reminded them in chapter 1. Peter reminded them in chapter 1 of God's grace. That God's grace gives what they need to be made right with God for salvation. But God's grace also gives them everything they need for growing and walking with God in godliness. And that requires, that gift of grace requires sustained effort so that, so that these Christians would not allow themselves to simply drift through life, but they would make every effort to grow in godliness. And Peter just reminds them towards the end of chapter 1 that the only way that you will make it and the only way that you will stay afloat in these days of false teaching is to stay tethered and committed to the word of God which serves as a trustworthy light in a world of darkness. And that brings us to our passage this morning where Peter will warn of these false teachers. He will remind these Christians of God's punishment and he will remind these Christians of God's protection. And so there's a warning of the false teachers, a reminder of God's punishment, and a reminder of God's protection. And those three points will serve as the outline for our sermon this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, no shame in looking in table of contents. If you're not familiar where uh, 2 Peter is, or even 1 Peter. If you know where 1 Peter is, you will have a good idea where 2 Peter is. So, first point Peter wants to drive home is this. False teachers harm Christians. False teachers harm Christians. We see this in verses 1 through 3, in the passage that Jenny just read. If you look up in verses 19 through 21, what you find is there is a more sure word. There's a word that's been breathed out by God. And in contrast to that word that's been breathed out by God, Peter then warns in the first verse of chapter 2 that there is another voice that's whispering in the ears of the sheep. There's another voice that's competing for the attention and the allegiance and the affection of these, of these Christians. And he says that that other voice is the voice of false prophets and false teachers. Verse 1 reads this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter begins by recalling the day of the false prophets. False prophets, that's a reference to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament literally is just full of examples of many who were standing up and who were saying, I come in the name of God, and they were not speaking on behalf of God. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there is a warning against this. Perhaps one of the most well-known passages of false prophets in the Old Testament is Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23 is one of the lengthiest just denouncements against false prophets that, that our Lord gives. And in verse 16, this is what we read, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. You see, these false teachers, these false prophets, they, they presented themselves as spiritual instructors. And the Lord says, no, 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 they're spiritual imposters. They're not instructing you from the word. They're speaking from their own imaginations. And he transitions and he says, just as false prophets arose among the people then, the second half of verse 1 says that there will also be false teachers among you. So he was, he was encouraging them to remember how the people of God encountered false prophets in the days of the prophets, and he reminded these Christians that they weren't to be free from that temptation and those influences. He says, no, just in the same way, there will also be false teachers among you. It's interesting, the wording that he uses there, just as there will also be false teachers among you. You could read that and you could think, ah, Peter is saying that they're not there yet, but they're going to be there. They will be there. I don't believe that's what Peter is doing. The rest of the letter makes clear that these false teachers are there. They're in their midst. He's remembering the promises of the Old Testament and then he's remembering the teachings of Jesus saying that there would always be false teachers in their midst. The future tense there doesn't mean that there's an absence of the false teachers in the present, in the present, but it's going to continue on in the future. And so in these three verses, I just want to draw out a few ways in which Peter makes clear that these false teachers harm Christians. One of the ways, he says, is they secretly introduce destructive heresies. The, the word secretly there, it's not, it's not meaning that they were kind of having meetings that no one knew about, that they weren't keeping, uh, that they were trying to keep their teachings hidden. No, they were actively spreading them. They were publicly spreading them. Peter is saying that they were secretly introducing destructive heresies in that they weren't advertising that what they were teaching was out of line with the scriptures. In fact, in many ways, they taught it as though it fit well in line with the Scriptures. And perhaps that's one of the most dangerous things of uh, aspects of false teaching is that oftentimes it masquerades really, really closely to truth. Really closely. They didn't come to town with a sermon series called Why the Christian Faith is Stupid. Right? They weren't, at, they weren't kind of publicly setting themselves up against just the absurdity of the message that Peter had been preaching. No, they would say, ah, oh, we agree with most things that Peter has been preaching. But Peter doesn't go far enough. Or Peter's really concerned about this little piece of doctrine, and we're not concerned about this piece of doctrine, and so we're close enough. They didn't bring mere disagreements. It says they introduced destructive heresies. They didn't bring a variety of options. They brought destruction. 
They brought destruction. I think it's good for us to hear. Uh, We can oftentimes read about the Reformation and we see Martin Luther and we just think, man, every time I read about Martin Luther, he's putting some false teacher on blast. And and we, we we tend to look at that and we think, Ah, man, Luther was a little aggressive, or or a lot aggressive. And we think, ah, maybe we should do a different approach. And our temptation, maybe to avoid the ditch that we perceive that the reformers were in and so aggressively confronting false teaching, the ditch that we fall into is just sort of being okay with it. We don't want to rock the boat. And Peter says, no, 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 understand that their teaching is already rocking the boat. It's about to capsize the boat. And so it is worth standing up and fighting for. The word there for heresies means faction. It's it's when a faction emerges because someone deviates from the bounds of the Christian faith. Another way of saying it is that these false teachers were putting counterfeit bills into the currency of faith for these Christians. What they were promoting wasn't the true and real thing. But they not only introduced and secretly introduced destructive heresies, second, they denied the master who bought them. They denied the master who bought them and that brought about swift destruction upon them. Friends, nominal Christianity will always be popular within the church. And nominal Christianity, when I say nominal Christianity, I just mean people who would say, check the box, yes, I'm a Christian, but really could care less about allegiance to Christ. Nominal Christianity will always be popular in the church, and nominal Christianity will always be popular outside of the church. That's the best kind of Christianity that our world loves. A Christianity that doesn't require you to hold out truth to anyone else. It's just your truth. And so as long as you don't push that on me, you're fine to believe whatever you want to believe. These false teachers appear to be members of their churches. Let's say it another way. These false teachers went through foundations. These false teachers were baptized. These false teachers signed the church covenant. These false teachers got a copy of what is a healthy church member. They, they really did, and those were examples of what we do. Uh, so I don't want you to be like, how did he get that from the text? Uh, they were not people who were coming in from the outside with this crazy agenda. They were, they were sitting in community groups. And they arose from within. And they began to deviate from the truth. They rejected the fundamental truths of the Christian faith and the gospel that they one time embraced. This rejection leads to eternal destruction. Just let the weight of that fall on you for a little bit. Eternal destruction. It matters. It matters what is said in your CG. It matters what is preached from this pulpit. It matters. And so you could read that and you could go, wait a minute. They denied their master who had bought them. 
Is Peter saying that there were some who were once legitimate Christians, but now they're not legitimate Christians, that somehow they lost their salvation? Is Peter saying that they were once saved, but now they've slipped out of God's mighty hand? I would just encourage you, read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. These, not only in Peter's writings, but the references of Paul's writings, which Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 16, uh, 15 and 16, Peter understood Paul's writings to be part of the Scriptures. And so read Romans 8, 28 through 39. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. Read Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Read 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Peter is not saying there are some who were Christians who lost their salvation. God's people are God's people forever. What Peter does is he introduces a category of people that the Bible would call apostate. And we get that word from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. That some were among us, and then they went out from us because they weren't never a part of us. And so it's this idea that there are some who seem to belong. In the parable of the sower, what do we find? We find seed being sowed, and it looks like once it falls on the ground, and uh, even the rocky soil, what happens? Life springs up, and then all of a sudden, the uh, Concerns of this world chokes, chokes it out, and you realize it never took root. Paul, when writing about the gospel, says, I, I'm delivering to you that which is of utmost importance. And he walks through the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in, right before he does that, in verses uh, 3 and 4, he says, This is the gospel in which you stand, in which you heard, in which you received, unless you believed in vain. And that's what Peter has in mind, is there were some who showed up that became a part of the church. They were from within. It seemed that they belonged to the Lord, and time revealed the lack of genuineness of their faith. They were really never born again. They claimed one thing, but their lives proved another. We could say they were deceived deceivers. They were deceived deceivers. And perhaps you're going, all right, Justin, just lighten up, right? Uh, Peter, why in the world were you so fixated on this? Why in the world are you questioning this? Uh, Justin, don't give me Peter. He seems to be a little bit harsh. And, and we know that throughout his life, he put his foot in his mouth and he wasn't always... Just give me the grace-filled Jesus. That's who I need to hear from. I would love for you to hear from grace-filled Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come in or who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You say, okay, he's talking about trees and talking about fruit. What's he meaning? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so we jump back into 2 Peter chapter 2, and what we realize is that Peter's teaching oozes Jesus' teaching. This is exactly what Christ said. These were false teachers who were showing up claiming to know the Lord. And so maybe the most important important question that you will be asked today isn't so much, do you know about the Lord? But maybe the question is, uh, does the Lord know you? Does he know you? You say, well, yes, he knows everyone. Everyone's created in his image. He does. Does he know you through the lens of his covenant? These are people who had proclaimed and said that they were under the blood, but they were not under the blood of Jesus. Their doctrine denied their need for Practical, personal holiness. And that's what what Peter says. He says, they denied their master who bought them. And particularly in this context, talking about these false teachers who were living immoral lives, just uh, sexually, uh, sexually promiscuous lives. There are other places in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 1, makes clear that whenever the Lord has ransomed us. One of the things that that ransom does, that payment does, is that frees us from being under the dominion of sexual passions. And so by their unwillingness to not be under under the dominion of sexual passions, they were denying the one that they said purchased them from those passions. Verse 2 shows this clearly an issue here says that many people were following their sensuality. Right? So you have Peter standing up saying, there is a, a second coming of the Lord. There will be a final judgment. So it matters how you live. And you had false teachers saying, there's not a second coming. There won't be a final judgment. And so live however you want to live. I mean, if we took that message and broadcast it into this community, what would, what would garner more interest? What would be the way to get a bigger following? They were advocating licentiousness, their shameful lifestyle, and many were all too eager to follow their example. You see, it's really, really easy to sort of peddle a Christianity that says, give me Jesus as Savior as long as I don't have to sign up for Jesus as Lord. And that was the crux of these false teachers. We agree with Peter on the need for saving. We disagree with Peter on the need for us to act like we really have been redeemed. You can't have Christ 
without the demands of Christ's gospel. Friends, I I hope you hear that today. No matter how uh, well versed you are in your story, you can't have Christ without the moral demands of his gospel. I've heard people say, I'm leaving Christianity, but I'm not leaving Christ because I believe in a God who loves and is inclusive to all people, who honors same-sex unions, who submits to science. Friends, they were saying this 2,000 years ago. This isn't novel. Think about the early church. There were two root errors, legalism and license. People would say salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have to work at it. And so what did they do? They began to just create these lists of things that you had to do, and it, it, it became legalism. And on the other hand, you had some people that said, friends, grace abounds. Do whatever you want to do as long as you've done enough to sort of get in. The only ground of salvation is faith, but true faith manifests itself. It reveals itself in a life that is seeking to be submissive and obedient to the Word of God. It's a dreadfully serious thing when a Christian calls what is evil good. False teachers were leading people astray. Because the false teachers were encouraging them to celebrate what God condemned. And verse 10 tells us that they were bold in their sexual exploitations and their self-willed, and and they were self-willed in their hatred for authority. Why? Why were they bold in these expressions and why were they defiant against authority? Because they couldn't stand anyone trying to regulate their sexual passions and desires. Friends, as I was thinking about this, it just hit me this week. False teaching gives us a permission to abuse grace and to do what we want. They persisted in and they promoted their sin. And they're not denying all aspects of truth. They're tweaking, they're twisting. They affirm some, but yet they deny others. Friends, the Christian faith is not a buffet. It's not pick a little bit of what you want and do without of what else is there. It's all or nothing. Sin always poses as pleasurable to us. us. Satan cast his lies as virtues to us. I wonder if Peter paused, even when he penned that word, that they denied their master. Because he had fallen into the same trap on the night that Jesus was taken. They simply didn't want a master, so they kept on denying. But the third thing that we see is that they exploited with false words in verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. William Tyndale said, "False uh, false teachers seek to make merchandise of you. Tim Challies put it this way, false teachers are concerned with your goods, but not with your good. They want to serve themselves and never you, 
They are content for Satan to have your soul as long as they can have your stuff. And compared to chapter 1, the apostles speak what is true based on eyewitness account. And these teachers are motivated by money. They're motivated by greed. They're motivated to give you what is false. This false teaching that was permeating and threatening these churches and these Christians, it's centered on sex and money. And so let's just, let's be clear. Woe to me and woe to any of you if we change one ounce of Christian truth so that we get a penny from one another. The truth of God's word is not for sale. No matter what someone is willing to pay for us to say what they want to hear, that price is always too high. And so what does this mean for us today? You have these false teachers that were doing this, but what does it mean for us today? I'd like to say a word to non-Christians. I wonder if you realize that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian really is a Christian. And I would just say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that there are many in our numbers across the world who profess one thing and could care less about giving what's rightly God's to God. I would just encourage you, get to know people who profess to be Christians and ask them about their faith. Seek to, seek to understand a little bit more about the Christian faith by watching the life of those who profess to be Christians. My Christian brothers and sisters, that should not be a threat to any of us. We should welcome that. Those who realize that they don't have the virtue that's needed and those who find their only hope in the work of Jesus, those are true Christians. A true Christian repents of their sin regularly. A a true Christian seeks to keep others away from sin and to keep others near to God. And so to my Christian brothers and sisters, it matters how you live. It clearly matters what you profess, but it also matters how you live. These false teachers were saying it doesn't matter how you live. They were saying that as long as you checked the boxes, you could follow your sexual desires wherever they led. They were not concerned about the fact that God was a God who had so ordered and given the gift of sexuality. They didn't think it was necessary because they didn't believe in a final judgment. And so as a church, I just want to remind us that we have a responsibility to watch out for false teachings. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, what we would find is that God just doesn't hold accountable false teachers, but he also holds accountable those who support them. The elders of this church have a particular responsibility to guard the flock of God. I pray and I trust that you have confidence that your elders are seeking to protect you from false teaching. One pastor said, one of the many reasons that we need to know each other as a church family is so that we can ensure the lives of those who teach us are matching their teaching. While they will never be perfect, 
their lives should match the truth they profess. Friends, false, teachings will, uh, false teaching will always be attractive to some. Every congregation has the capacity and is closer than we want to realize to succumbing to false teaching. Even Jesus had his Judas. If you're constantly giving in to greed, if you're constantly giving in to immorality, then you're doing something that you may not even realize you're doing. You are preparing your mind and your heart to accept false teaching. If you're giving in to immorality and you're giving in to greed, you are preparing your life to receive false teaching. You know why? Because you will soon love the sin that you're treasuring and you will want truth to match what you love. Friends, your holiness matters. It matters even as we think about being a church that's protected from false doctrine. This is one of the reasons that we covenant together as a local church. And I would just say, if you're not a member of a local church, it is God's gift and design for you to be protected by other brothers and sisters who are willing to give watch over your soul. But you also have a God-given responsibility as a Christian to be doing that to others. But this is why we covenant together. This is why we practice church membership. This is why we pursue church discipline to those who are professing one thing and who are living lives in another direction. This is why expositional preaching, just preaching through the Bible, verse by verse, book by book, it exposes us to God's word and it reminds us that God's word is indeed God's word. Just because someone publishes a book, just because someone preaches a sermon, just because someone has a seminary degree, it doesn't mean that they're always working for God's purposes. In the New Testament letters, what you'll find is very little critique of the outside world, but you will find a host of concern for the errors that are bubbling up within the church. Friends, as, as much as I pray that covenant life is leaning healthy, we are, we are susceptible to this more than we realize. You don't want Little Red Riding Hood as one of your elders. Those who think that there are just no wolves. You also don't want people that are suspicious, that are coming up to every sheep and pulling their head back and saying, let me see your teeth. False teachers harm Christians. Leads us to our second point. God punishes false teachers. We see this in verses 4 through 10. God punishes false teachers. Verse 3, Peter says that God's judgment on those who harm his people is not idle, it's not forgotten. And though while it may not be happening as the false teaching is going forth, it will happen. And you say, well, how, how can we be sure that it will happen? Well, Peter gives us three examples that reminds us that God is indeed faithful to punish the unrighteous. And that's what he does in verses 4 through 10. You have the warning. This is what false teachers do. And then you think, well, what's going to happen to them? Are they just going to win the day? And Peter says, no, 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 no. God is going to be faithful to punish false teachers. He will be faithful to punish the unrighteous. And you say, well, how in the world can we have confidence in that? 
Peter says, I'll give you three examples. The first one, verse 4. Because he did not spare angels when they sinned. If he didn't spare angels when they sinned, then certainly he would not spare false teachers in their sin. These angels were cast into a pit of darkness. It's where the ungodly would go while they wait for their final punishment. They've been set aside for condemnation. You say, well, what these angels do in their sin? And there's a debate here. Is this speaking of kind of the, the pre, before the foundations of the world, fall of the angels, angelic rebellion, and a third of the angels followed? I don't believe that's what's, I don't, I don't believe this is speaking about this, uh, how uh, pre Prehistory, fall of the angels before creation. I believe this passage is, it's, it seems to almost certainly be talking about Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. You'll remember Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God, read the angels, came to earth in human form, and they had sexual relations with, with human women. If you were to read Jude, Jude makes this clear. He even quotes one of the uh, books of antiquity. Jude chapter, uh, Jude 1, there's only one. Jude 1, verses 6 and 7. Seems to be that, and maybe your mind is just going, wait a minute, an angel came in human form and had relations with human women and uh, like, aren't, don't angels always have halos over their head or wings or bright light? I mean, the author of Hebrews says that there are times where sometimes we entertain angels and we are unaware. And so I believe because of the topic at hand, the sexual promiscuity, and that's what these false teachers were coming in promoting, I believe this is what this is referring to. Nevertheless, if God did not spare these angels when they sinned, the lesson is he will not spare false teachers in their sin. Second example is the flood. The world that we are in today is not the world that once was. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 6, see that the Lord looked down and he could see the intent of everyone's heart and mind. And everyone wanted to do what they wanted to do. Just think about if, if, if that video was played for all of us this morning. The intense of your heart and your mind. Just what is it that you want to do? When no one else is checking what's running through your head, what is that? I can just, uh, mine is embarrassingly disgusting. I just think God looking down and, and seeing thoughts and intentions. And what he do? As an act of judgment, he flooded the entire world, saved one family, Noah's family. The argument here is from the greater to the lesser. If he didn't spare angels, why would he spare false teachers? If he punished the entire world because of their sin, why in the world would he spare false teachers because of theirs? Oftentimes we think the ark is this cute piece in the Bible where Noah took the animals in the arky-arky and the gophers going barky-barky. And... <laughs> this is not a cute scene in the Bible. There's not... There's not been a judgment on earth like the flood. 
Peter sees this as a warning. God has done it once before, and he will punish sin again. And then the third example he gives us is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19. Sodom was like the dream vacation place. It was beautiful to the eye. And Ezekiel chapter 16 says that the guilt, the, the sin of Sodom was this, that they had pride, there was excess food, there was prosperous ease. They did not ease the plight of the poor, and they were depraved as it pertained to their sexuality. What's crazy is that these false teachers were seeking to help Christians chase after the very things that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for. The prosperity gospel is similar to this. Get what destroyed Sodom. I'm helped by uh, Shailen, Christian music artist who says, tell me who would teach you to pursue as a goal the very thing the Bible says will ruin your soul. Friends, God will punish the unrighteous, the wicked, and the ungodly. Those who are corrupt in the flesh, those who deny the authority of God. When we read through the Bible, that's what we find. We find that there really seems to be two ways to live. One way is to say, I don't, I don't want God to rule over me. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what makes me happy. I don't want his jurisdiction. I want to be outside of that. He's oppressive. He keeps me from having fun. And the Bible calls that posture, that posture of dismissing and rebelling against God, the Bible calls that a posture of sin. And yet, because God is good, because he's loving, because he's merciful. He must judge sinners. And in his mercy and grace, he made another way. Not merely to to give everyone what they deserve, but to give some something that they didn't deserve. In his mercy, he made another way by sending Jesus to Christ, who would come and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And though though it, it sounds exclusive, it is, it's the way to eternal joy. and No one comes to the Father but through me. In a dark world with no way to God, Jesus Christ comes and he lives a sinless life and he dies on the cross as a substitute bearing the penalty for sin. And he raises on the third day from the dead. And he says, all who turn from your sin and all who trust in me, I will be with you forever. You will be with me. Not turning from sin. You will get forever. You will get forever in torment and agony, experiencing the eternal hatred of God for sin. And it all rides on what you do with Christ. If you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. Talk to anyone. There is a judgment that is coming for the ungodly, for the wicked. You say, I'm not that bad. Now, if you're guilty at one point, 
in breaking the law, it's though you've broken it all. Remember, the law is like a piece of glass. Breaking it once, the whole thing shatters. Friends, there's a grace that's available in Christ, and that leads us to our last point. God protects the godly. God protects the godly. He protects the righteous. And so what's crazy is that there is a way in which you and I, ungodly and unrighteous people, can be made godly and can be made righteous. And that's through the work of Jesus. And if we turn from our sin and we trust in him, we are then made righteous and made godly. And then the promise is not that in in the sweep of his judgment against all ungodliness, that he just wipes everyone out. No, the Bible says, in fact, he not only makes us what we aren't, but then he protects us and keeps us. Friends, you come to Christ. You don't just get forgiveness of sins. Praise God, you get that. You get God forever. He will keep you. He will not let you go. God will not only destroy the wicked, He will deliver the righteous. He will deliver His people from trials. That's what verse 9 tells us. In His wrath, God remembers mercy. Think about it. When he rains down waters on the earth to judge the earth, do you know what he does with Noah and his family? He leads them to the security of the ark. Whenever he rains down judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, do you know what he does with Lot? He leads him out by the hand of an angel. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to rescue his people. And those are the two examples he gives us. One in verse 5. And the other in verse 7. In the midst of perversion, God gave grace to a man named Noah. If you were to read Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, you would uh, would see that Noah found favor. It's the first time in the Bible the word for grace is used. The first time it shows up in the scriptures. Noah was given grace. And in Noah, do you know what Noah's name means? His name means rest. God's deliverance upon him. What we find is this amazing picture of God's provision for us. Because of all of the sin in the world, judgment is coming. But God gives grace through a man in whom people will find rest. We look and we go, Noah was the hope for the world. And we see Noah was just foreshadowing the true hope of the world in which people would ultimately and fully find rest from the judgment of and for sin. God provides the means. He provided an ark of wood and all who entered would do so by faith and God would shut them in with his mighty hand and his judgment would come on the world. But all the while, he was preserving a people to be with him forever. Friends, Jesus Christ came into a world of ungodliness and through another instrument of wood, a cross, took on the judgment that we all deserved. And all who enter into him are secured. They're shut in by faith. And when judgment comes, just like the Passover lamb, it passes over us. And he did the same thing with Lot. I mean, you read Genesis chapter 19, and you're just like, wow. We, Moses just highlighted a really bad day for Lot. 
I mean, it's, it's, uh, Lot didn't make a good decision about where he was going to camp. Uh, he was really close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, yeah, uh, next episode, we see him uh, getting drunk and having relations with his daughter. I mean, it's, it is not a good thing. And yet Peter says, Lot is a righteous man. I'm thankful that we're not defined by one day. I'm thankful that we're not defined by one decision and one season in our lives. Lot was a man who trusted in God. Three times in this little section, verses 7 and 8, he's described as righteous. Friends, God saves all sorts of sinners who have bad moments and bad days and bad years and bad lives. We, like Lot, are at times tempted to chase after the things that we hate and we know we shouldn't. But praise be to God, he knows how to save his people. Praise God for his grace, for his rescuing grace, for his preserving grace. In verse 9, it says, the Lord knows. He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He knows. He knows who are his, and he's never lost any of them. Abraham prayed, would you, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? There are just 10 who were there. Would you... Would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there was just one? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptations. He knows how to get you out of whatever you're in this morning. And he's provided a way other than through enduring judgment that you rightly deserve. It's the better, the better way, the more secure way through the ark of the cross of Jesus the Christ. A day of judgment is coming. God will bring destruction on all those who oppose him. But in great mercy and grace, he died for sinners like you and me. He will destroy and he will deliver. And I'm just reading about Lot and it makes the statement that Lot's soul is just tormented over the evil that's around him. I just want to ask in closing, are are our souls tormented over the unrighteous deeds of those around us? Lot seems to be a guy who never was able to come to peace with the sin that was around him. I wonder if you are at peace with the sin that's around you. One commentator said, our great security against sin lies in the fact that we are shocked about it? Are you shocked about sin? Have we made peace with sin? Is there sin that used to shock you but now you're okay with? We're not immune to false teachers. And Peter says, all who deny Christ will face horrific judgment. And friends, I just want you to know, it is heartless for you and I to not warn others who are facing that judgment if nothing changes in their lives. It is heartless of us to not warn them of the judgment that is to come. There is so much at stake. So much is on the line. Heaven and hell hang on whether or not we follow him in righteousness or deny him in immorality.
And the good news and the reason that we hold out truth to those around us is that there is a grace for all who repent and trust in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we understand that your word has been given to reveal yourself to us and even to protect us. And so I pray. I pray that as we have heard that your spirit would now apply and help us even massage to know what it looks like to walk out changed. And so in this moment of silence, beginning with the need to confess and then getting to the place of walking out in obedience. Show us. What do we need to confess to you and how do we need to obey you? Speak now to us, we pray.